We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies edtech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where you learn how to be a leader and not just a manager of a to-do list. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Your to-do list is a hungry monster that is never satisfied. For the last year and a half, I've helped principals get awards, get promoted, and find the time to do the work that really matters. I recently opened a new mastermind slot. Schedule a call with me and let's overcome the stressed and isolated principal position together. Go to the show notes for this episode at transformativeprincipal.org and click schedule a call with Jethro. Welcome to Transformative Principal, episode 212. I am so excited and honored to have Pedro Noguera on the call with me today. Uh, Dr. Noguera, thank you so much for being part of the program. Would you mind sharing a little bit about your story and where you're from and what you're doing for education now? Sure. I'm a professor of education at UCLA. I'm a sociologist by training, and um, I, I do work that focuses broadly on how schools are affected by what's going on in, in the environment that they're in and and how that impacts children and, and impacts schools. And a lot of my work looks at, at how uh, educators can respond to the needs of kids and create an environment where teaching and learning um, is flourishing. So, um, you know, I've written several books about this work, and I get to travel all over the country in various parts of the world. Uh, recently, it was in Alaska, speaking to principals in Anchorage, and I got to learn a lot, too, about what was happening there. Yeah, and Alaska is where we met, and it was a a wonderful opportunity to get to meet you and and hear from you, and really an inspiring address that uh, my assistant principal and I walked away from feeling like there was so much more we could do, and that it was actually possible, which I thought was really powerful. Is that sometimes you walk away thinking, "Oh, that'd be awesome," but there's just no way. How do we? How would we get started? But we actually walked away feeling like we had some of the vocabulary to start conversations with uh, other teachers about some of the things that you talked about, which was really inspiring. So so thank you for, for being able to boil it down to a level that we could actually understand. 
Yeah, no, I think that's important. You know, if if um, we if, if the ideas are too abstract and um, we can't address the the practical needs of of kids and of schools, then um, I think that you know academia is in trouble. So, you know, I try to use examples uh, from the real world of, of schools that are making a difference for all kinds of kids to help educators uh, understand what it looks like when we are uh, doing the work that's focused on equity. The definition I use is to address both the academic and the non-academic needs of kids, um, because typically it's those non-academic needs, uh, particularly issues related to poverty. Uh, and the and the issues that come along with that that undermine academic performance for kids, and so when you have an equity lens, you see the whole child. You understand that the academic needs and the social and the emotional needs are all connected, and then you devise strategies to address those. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's fascinating how we sometimes think that education is just about teaching the academic skills, when at times it seems like the academic skills are secondary to what non-academic needs the kids actually have. And so, you know, we can get into like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs piece, but really being aware of how we support kids and the different ways that we can support them that's not just academic is very important. Can you start by defining what the difference is between equality and equity? Yeah, this is a a topic that confuses many people because, you know, I think most people understand the, the concept of equality is about treating everyone the same and making sure that they get the same things, which in the context of education makes no sense because we know that uh, all the kids are different. Uh, I always like to remind anybody who has uh, more than one child practices equity at home because you know as a parent that your kids have different needs and job of a, as of a parent is try to you do your best to meet those needs. Well, that's really what educators have to do too is they have to know the kids, they have to know and understand the circumstances that they live in outside of school in order to devise strategies that allow them to meet their needs. So equity is very different from uh, equality because it is about understanding the differences. Uh, it's not about lowering the standards. It's not about lowering expectations. Can't be that because then we're really not helping kids. But it is about making standards accessible. And it is about attempting to compensate for the needs that kids bring. And again, uh, anybody who has more than one child does this already. If you have a child who's shy, you compensate by trying to help them make friends or you don't put them in a situation where their shyness will overwhelm them. The same thing happens in school. There are some kids that just need more attention, need more time, uh, need more support. Uh, Otherwise, they're not going to be successful. Yeah. And it's not just about, you know, making accommodations. Sometimes you need to go a little bit extra. And, you know, you showed a, a picture in your in one of your slideshows about uh, kids watching a baseball game and how they were, you know, equality was them standing on um, all the same size box and the little kid couldn't see over the fence and equity is giving them different size boxes so they could all see at that same level. And so, you know, that's, that's an easy way to understand it, but it's difficult to put into practice. What are some of the challenges you see with providing equity in schools? Well, you know, so to use the metaphor again of the kids watching the baseball game, um, the fence is not going to get lower uh, just because the kids are shorter. But you can bring a step ladder so kids can can see above the fence so they can watch the game. Same thing is true in school. We know, for example, something as as basic as homework is an equity issue. Some kids have a parent at home who can help them, who have the time and the education 
And many kids get that. Many educators themselves are helping their own kids with homework. Well, we know there are kids who have no one to help them. And, and that places them at a disadvantage. So then we have to take that into account. Maybe we don't assign homework that involves doing new work that hasn't been taught in class uh, at home, uh, because that's an exercise in frustration. Homework only works when, when it really the work is um, learned in the classroom, the teacher can see the kids at work, and then the homework is used to reinforce the learning. Uh, that's an equity approach, because you don't want to Again, lower the standard, but you do want to make sure that kids kids aren't being penalized for uh, circumstances they don't control. Now, that's that's a good word to use. The kids are not being penalized for circumstances they can't control. You said a few minutes ago that equality makes no sense in education because we know that all kids are different. And my district in uh, Alaska right now is focusing a lot on personalizing learning. And one of the complaints from the teachers has been that, well, now kids are going to be all in different places. And my response is always, well, the kids are already in different places. We just aren't recognizing it. We're just still, you know, doing the spray and pray and, you know, penalizing those kids that don't have the same opportunities as others and rewarding those who do have good opportunities for being born in a certain place or to certain parents and and not really recognizing where they're really coming from. How is that penalizing them? Can you go a little bit deeper on that idea? Yeah. You know, I know, for example, growing up, um, because neither of my parents had a college degree and had, hadn't even graduated from high school, uh, by the time I hit fourth grade, my parents couldn't really help me with a lot of my work. They valued education and they, in fact, uh, took us to the library, made sure we read, and um, but they couldn't really help me. So. I was much more dependent on my schools for the help I needed. And I was lucky. It was hit or miss. Some some days or some classes, I, I received that help. Sometimes I didn't. And I think that that's true for a lot of kids. Uh, many of our kids need more support. Many of our kids, in fact, are relational learners. They will work for teachers that care about them, uh, that build strong relationships, and they may choose not to work for teachers that don't care about them. And, and we've all seen that. Uh, the same student with one teacher is performing fine with another teacher is not. And so when we have an equity focus on our work, we, we're committed to knowing the children, we're committed to building the relationships, and we're committed to trying to do the work of ensuring that the, the outcomes in, in terms of academic achievement are still high despite the challenges those kids face. So again, it's not about lowering expectations or lowering standards. And that sounds so much more challenging to to do more than just stand up in front of the class and teach. It sounds challenging to to get to know kids on a personal level, to build a relationship with them, to make sure that you're making time to hear about their story and know about them. How do we keep adding that to our plates and still have the time we need to get through the content we need to get through? Well, you know, if you start from the premise that uh, we do best, uh, we as people, human beings, do best uh, when we're in a a community. Uh, That is when we feel safe with the people who we're around and when we know that there's support there for us. That's what kids need. need, We haven't focused enough on creating the conditions that are essential for teaching and learning. One of those conditions is safety. Another condition is, is a strong sense of community. And when there is a strong sense of community, that the kids are are more willing to take risk. They're more willing to uh, share something about themselves. 
and they're more willing to challenge themselves. And so that is a, a critical part of the equity work. And I think it's, it's too often something that goes unrecognized. What's typical in most schools is the kids with the greatest needs are the kids who are doing least well. And they're doing least well, essentially, because we have not responded to their needs. It also turns out that in most schools, we will more likely to punish the kids with the greatest needs. And again, because those needs aren't being met. So knowing the kids and knowing how to, and you know, we can't meet every need, right? If a child doesn't have a, a stable home, we, we may not be addressed that. But we can make sure that that child um, receives mentorship and support at home, that they are have um, a caring relationship with an adult, that um, they're, they're in a safe environment. And so there, there are things that, that can compensate for some of the disadvantages that kids bring. And that's the real equity work. Yeah, so I'd I'd like to talk a little bit about that, about how we compensate uh, for the equity issues that that kids have. What are some of the ways that we can do that? I mean, so before before you answer that, while you're thinking of it, one of my challenges is that I strongly believe that families are incredibly important and should be the place where kids learn the most. And so I don't want to take that responsibility or that opportunity away from families, but I also want to respect where kids are coming from. They may have challenges that they may not have a family that does that, but I I want to be cautious and not overstep my bounds in that situation. Does that make sense? No, it makes a lot of sense. I think that the challenge there is to build a partnership with the family so that the parents are doing their part to support their child and the school is doing its part. But a partnership has to be rooted in trust and respect in order for it to um, really have a positive impact on children. And in, in too many schools either ignore the importance of building that partnership with parents or don't put the work in. You know, teachers get almost no training on how to work with parents, especially when the parents from a different background. And so you really have to recognize that, that parents are critical to the educational outcomes of kids. And uh, we have to put the time and effort into uh, developing those relationships as well. And one of the challenges that I've seen with that is when you start going down that path of training teachers that parents from a different background uh, have a different lifestyle and, and things that they value, it often devolves into broad generalization. So like at a Title I school, we used to say that, you know, parents weren't engaged because they didn't care. Then we got some training and now we say that parents aren't engaged because they're working a whole bunch of different jobs to provide for their families, which may or may not be true, but we're trying to be more culturally sensitive and not culture in, you know, where people are from, but a culture in, in how they're living their life. And so we're still judging them, but we're just judging them in a different way, in a more favorable way, because now they're working hard instead of not working at all. And so when you do start going down that path of training, at least to some generalizations that may still not be fair. Do you have any advice on how to, how to deal with that? Sure. I, I would say we don't want to judge anyone. Um, judgment gets in the way of building a relationship and, and the partnership I spoke about. What we want is empathy. Empathy is not pity. It is not looking down on someone. It is a recognition that that, that there are, in fact, uh, real obstacles that some people face. And we have to be able to see the world through their eyes, what it, understand what it's like to be in their shoes. It uh, doesn't mean we, do, we make excuses for them. 
um, especially if we see that parents who are, are not doing their part or they're doing things that are actually undermining their children. But when we act out of empathy and a sense of solidarity with the families that we serve, then we make it clear to the parents we care about their children, we value their children in the same ways we would want our children to be treated. We treat their children with dignity and respect. And we are very clear about what we're going to do to support their children and what they can do as well to support their, their children to be successful in school. Yeah, that is so powerful. And what are, what are some of your suggestions for how to build empathy with parents in a way that is not judgmental, but helps us really see where they're coming from without also prying into their personal lives that we really don't want to do anyway? Well, I'll give you an example. One of my former students, when she's doing a parent-teacher conference, she starts the conversation like this. She says, um, you know about more about your child than I do. What can you tell me about your child that would help me to be a good teacher for your child? A question like that opens the door to the partnership, opens the door to the parent telling you some things and recognizing, wow, this person appreciates the fact that I do know my child. It doesn't mean the parents know how to help the child or know how to teach the child, but they may know some things about their personality, their temperament, their interest. And that, again, uh, reinforces a, a sense of partnership, which is what we're after with parents. I think it's it's very important for parents to know that we care about their child and that that, that the child is safe with us and that we'll be, we're going to let their, the parents know as soon as we see signs of trouble. Uh, because that's what I think most parents accept. Most parents, the vast majority, want their kids to be successful. It doesn't mean they know how to help them to be successful, but that's what they would like. So that means they want the same things we want. And so we need to build a partnership on that premise, that we, the interests of the child, that the adults have to work together. Yeah, I, I really like that. And I, I think there's so much that we can do that we we just get into rhythms and and ruts, if you will, of, you know, the parent comes into parentage conference and we just start, you know, talking about whatever issues we may be having. And that question, um, you know, I was just meeting with a with a parent today and, you know, she was having some issues with her daughter and we had a conversation much like what you said. I didn't say, you know, your daughter better than I do, but that would have been good. But I did say, how can I help your daughter? in a way that will actually work for her instead of just forcing her to be compliant. How do I help her see that she can buy into this program and be successful? And, you know, the mom, like you said, she didn't know how to work with the kid, but her response was just keep doing what you're doing. And eventually she'll start to trust you. And, you know, that was very insightful because I learned what she knew about her daughter was that it takes time for her to trust. And now I know that I can have patience and wait for that time to come, which I'm fine with doing. Right. And, you know, and that, that's a good insight that the parents shared about how to work with the child. And, um, you know, it, it might seem trite, but um, a lot of times the kids who are doing least well, we don't even know how to communicate with those parents. Yeah. And we don't know how to reach them. And that obviously gets in the way. It should never be the case that the only time we communicate with the parent is to tell them how much trouble their, their child is in. That doesn't build the relationship that we need. So we've got to be proactive about forging relationships with parents. And we've got to uh, create an environment where parents feel comfortable and feel assured that, that, that we are doing what's in the best interest of the child. 
That was an awesome interview with Pedro Noguera. I hope that you enjoyed it and be sure to go to transformativeprinciple.org to check out the show notes and get, get links to his books and things like that. Really inspiring to talk with him. And uh, next week we're going to talk about trust and respect and having hard conversations with parents and then doing other things to make our schools student centered, which we give a lot of lip service to, but we don't do as often as we should. So I hope you'll uh, look forward to that next week. Well, thank you for listening and have a wonderful week. Transformative Principal is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators by educators. Visit edupodcastnetwork.com for more great podcasts. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com slash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E.